How easy would it be to even send a text message today to an existing client, say, hey, I'm not sure if it's for you, but many other business leaders in your circumstances are having huge success with blank. How open-minded would you be to learning more? What we're creating is we're creating moments where a prospect says to you, tell me some more about that. Most sales professionals are pretty darn good once the prospect says, tell me some more about that. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to the Dreamers and Doers podcast series. I'm your host, Craig Patterson, and it's all about bringing together experts in the field of IT, influential figures in the channel, innovators, disruptors, and distinguished guests for a candid conversation around market trends, best practices, um, and overall lessons in leadership. And today we have a very special guest with you here today. He's written two majorly transformational works around how to persuade and how to communicate and how to be more successful in the art of sales. And so today I'm here talking with my man, Phil Jones, the author of Exactly What to Say and Exactly How to Sell. And I can't wait to to explore his work and magic words, the underlying principle of exactly what to say. So please join me in welcoming Phil Jones to the Dreamers and Doers podcast. All right. Well, Phil Jones, thank you so much for joining the Dreamers and Doers podcast. It's been a minute. I'm so excited to be reconnected with you. And so you look at our podcast, it's all about what you're dreaming about and what you're doing. So Phil, tell me, tell me what you're dreaming about, your your future state, and tell me what you're doing, your current state today. Sure. I mean, always dreaming about, you know, creating some version of a better world. And, and, and that's in our world is how do we buy ourselves back more time? What do I do to be able to get more of the magic moments with the people that I care about most? How do I get to be able to spend more time doing the thing that I enjoy doing most, which is actually not very much. And that means that what I'm dreaming about is spending more time up in uh, up in the beautiful Hudson Valley, north of uh, New York City, and um, kicking back and enjoying nature a little. What am I doing about it? It's continually building our business up with exactly what to say, continually looking at generating multiple streams of revenue, continually looking at saying, how do we empower other people to carry the message into the world? So that what can happen is that I can leverage time back. I can be living my day-to-days, my Mondays through Sundays, doing more of the things that I like to do on a daily basis whilst other people are championing the message and taking it out to the wider world. Love that. I can't wait to dive into more around your books and your content. But before we go there, you know, I'm just curious. I always like to know people's background. So you know, ultimately, looking at your background, what led you to... You know, talk to me about your journey and what led you to write these books, exactly what to say and exactly how to sell and how that all transpired. I mean, I've been a dreamer my whole life. And I, I remember once being in a conversation with somebody who was close to my family at the time and is no longer close to my family. And, and what she said to me was um, when I shared goals, ambitions and dreams, she said to me, Phil, like, my goodness, you're such a dreamer, like it was a bad thing right? Like it was a bad thing. And, you know, I've been dreaming of leveling up my life, my entire existence from as far back as I can remember. I had my first business when I was 14 years of age. I was knocking on the doors of my neighbors, asking them politely whether they wanted to have their cars washed. 
From there, I continued to build a number of other entrepreneurial businesses through my teens. By the age of 15, 16, making more money than my school teachers. Youngest ever sales manager then for a big department store group in the UK and was um, leading sales teams of you know, 50, 80, 100 people, turnovers of 12 million pounds uh, um, at the age of 19, 20, 21. Went from there to then um, be a, um, a head of retail at a big furniture retail group. Went from there to then be able to go and lead the commercial side of two Premier League soccer clubs, which was a ton of fun. And from there, went and uh, started an overseas investment property business at the uh, that turned over 240 million pounds at its peak on a sales team of five. And then I started this carnation of my business back in 2008 where I was figuring out what I wanted to do next and kept getting invited in by small business networking groups, asking if I could help their members come up with ideas to trade out of recession. So this was, you know, plumbers, carpenters, insurance salespeople, real estate agents, accountants, IFAs, et cetera, all those independent business practitioners. So I did that while I was figuring out what I wanted to do next. And people kept asking for more. They said, well, you know, can we learn more from you? So I wrote my first one-day sales training program, put 12 people in a room, then did that rinse, repeat, 85 pounds a head, three, four times a month for a period of 18 months, built a coaching practice off the back of that, built a consulting practice off the back of that, wrote my first book, 2011, um, with the goal and the aspiration, the dream of being able to take my business global. So the first book was a passport for me to open up my skill set into other countries became apparent that it's easier to get booked when they don't know you and they can say best-selling author or blank. So first book was for that purpose. Um, and as we get here today, now written eight best-selling books and spoken in 59 different countries, five different continents, trained more than 2 million people. And the dream has always been to, to reposition people's perception around what selling really is and to help um, as many people as possible to find more confidence and competence in conversation so they can show up and ask for more of the things they want in life. Love that. So let's go back to those early days. It sounds like most of your early days, you were in some sort of sales capacity, right? Sounds like you went knocking door to door. You know, you were selling, you know, car detailing services. You did some sales in the furniture business. I'm just curious, like looking back at those early experiences in sales, like how did that shape your, your, your mindset? And like, did you uncover gaps like, what were you seeing in, in the market? Were there specific gaps that kind of built your foundational mindset around leading to these books? Talk to me about that. I mean, I've seen gaps everywhere, and I've always been a student of success, always been looking at people who are more successful than me in whatever area of life I'm looking to improve upon. And anytime I've ever met anybody more successful than I am, I've never been in awe. It's never been like, wow. Instead, I've asked the question, how? How do you do what you do? How have you achieved what you've gone on to be able to achieve? And I found that success leaves clues and successful people are happy to be able to share with you how they got there. And when it comes to saying, well, where are the gaps? The biggest gap that started to become glaringly obvious is the stereotype of what a good salesperson is, is not what a good salesperson is. So the belief that the salesperson is the alpha, gregarious, life and soul of the party, person with the gift of the gab, the one that could sell ice to Eskimos, et cetera, et cetera, that wasn't the one that was getting sustained results over serious periods of time. It was actually the people that cared massively about two things. One is they cared about the problem that their consumer was trying to solve as much, if not more than, 
their customer. So they actually cared about the outcome more than the consumer perhaps even had realized that they should have cared about it. What else they would do is they would then be relentlessly curious in their questioning in order to be able to understand the context of other people. So their recommendations would carry strength. And this for me was very different than what I ever believed that winning on sales was. And this has really formed a lot of the methodology that we brought into all of the books is to slow people down, help them be strategically more curious, help them collect more evidence, help them care more with compassion about the outcome of the other people, and then play for them to win, caring about how somebody's going to feel about the decision they made you know, six months, six years into the future. So I'd say that's been what's fueled a lot of this body of work is to try and change people's perception about what winning in sales really is all about and how all of us in some way, shape or form are salespeople. We're all selling a product or a service or an idea or a change in behavior or a change of outcome. Love that. So it sounds like that really set the foundation, right, for your body of work, really understanding more around being curious around the problem, you know, really digging into the customer problem, you know, and, and then relentless, you use the word relentless, right, to help that customer understand how to solve that particular problem. So like understanding those two key um, points, like what are some techniques that someone could use when they're you know, really trying to be curious, right? How could they put these into action? But a, a couple of simple techniques is there are a lot of examples where, as humans, we jump to a point of assumption or certainty too quickly. We think we know the answer before we really know the answer. What we actually do is we know that we think we know the answer. So how do you get to a position of certainty? Well, you insert more curiosity. So before you jump to a conclusion, just ask three more questions to sense check your point of view. Think about it in a simple form that for those of us listening in right now that have kids in our life, which is somewhere like most of us, is how many times have you either delivered advice or received advice as a child that was brilliant advice for the entirely wrong problem? I know that I've been guilty of doing this in my family, like jumping straight to the conclusion, saying, here's what you need to do. But actually, I didn't understand the context. So a great practice is just slowing yourself down that when you think you know what somebody should be doing, Ask three more questions before you reach your conclusion. Just almost cross-reference your own opinion so that you have a heightened level of certainty in that. What else is something that people can look to be able to do is the worst time to think about the thing you're going to say is in the moment you're saying it. Yet many of us now as adults find ourselves walking away from really important conversations thinking shoulda, woulda, coulda, trying to create a do-over for something you cannot get a do-over for. What you're far better to do is to be professional which means pre-brief the important conversations in your life as opposed to debrief them. But to do that, you have to decide ahead of time what are the important conversations in your life with precision. And this isn't every time I meet with my team or all of my customer interactions or all the time I spend with my family. There are micro moments within those moments that actually have a more significant impact than the collective group of conversations. So choose the little cogs in the machine that are going to have the biggest impact on the outcome you're looking for. And if you want to turn your dreams into outcomes, I'm 100% certain you are a handful of very specific strategic conversations, well articulated away from being able to make those dreams reality. So if I hear you correctly, I mean, what stands out to me is the element of preparation, right? If I'm a sales professional, like I shouldn't just go out and try to wing it. Like I need to actually be professional, right? 
and I need to prepare for those conversations. So, you know, so I can come out with the outcome I'm looking for, right? Instead of just, just, so just winging it. All right. So looking at your books, you've wrote some amazing books. You know, I want to first kind of hone in on exactly what to say. Um, you know, in the, in the book, you talk a lot about this concept of magic words, which I, I love. So talk to me about like, what does the magic words concept mean? And then maybe walk me through an example on how a sales professional could emphasize a certain word or say a different word to drive a different outcome. Through my career, delivering trainings and speeches, et cetera, I've always looked to be able to simplify examples by sharing with people a very precise application. We've called these things magic words. When I've met with people past delivering training sessions, speeches to them, years often past it, they're like, Phil, I'm still using your magic words. So magic words became something that was within my body of work. And it was the sprinkles on top of the cupcake, right? It was the the special sauce on the side of the steak that was the rememberability part of often the big principles. When I wrote the book, Exactly What to Say, what I realized was is that salespeople may well be good at buying books, but they're not so good at reading books. So I figured that if I wanted people to consume the information, then if I could do the work to be able to distill it down to something that was remarkably palatable to be able to work through, and I think it was Mark Twain that first said, if I had more time, I'd have written a shorter letter. The same trueness comes in the way that we package the book, exactly what to say. It's how do I actually take like a giant body of work around persuasion and influence and distill it down to a book that you can read cover to cover in just over an hour. So when we say it's 23 magic words, it isn't really. It's 23 deep-rooted principles around influence and persuasion disguised as magic words. So if I tried to teach the principles, you'd struggle to find examples. If I teach examples, you trip over the principles when you put them into practice in your real world. So the words aren't actually really magic. The ability to be able to understand human behavior and the psychology of why people make decisions is where the magic can happen. The words in the book are actually just some tools to trip over those principles. I give a couple of quick examples. Is the biggest reason that salespeople struggle to be able to achieve the success they're looking for is because they know that if you do not ask, you do not get, yet still they fail to ask for the things that they want in life. Why do they fail to ask for the things they want? More often than not, it's because they are fearful of rejection. So if I can write prefaces for them that can allow them to ask just about anybody, just about anything, and it be completely rejection-free, chances are that they might ask for the things that they want in life more often. An example of a rejection-free opening formula is the preface, I'm not sure if it's for you, but see, what does that sequence of words do? Well, if I prefaced an idea towards you, Craig, and I said, I'm not sure if it's for you, what would the little voice in your subconscious brain? I would be curious. Like, I want to know more because now this is not for me, right? And I'm improving pressure. And what's happening here, though, if we take it in full go slow mode, is two things. The first thing that happens if I said to you, Craig, I'm not sure if it's for you, your little voice would go, well, I'll be the judge of that, right? You take personal responsibility for a decision that needs to be made, and that decision is yours to make. And then the second thing that happens is curiosity is peaked. You're like, what is it? What is it? What is it? The word but on the end of that now just shifts the focus to next. See, but is often deemed as something that just negates what was said prior. Partially true. What it actually does is it shifts the focus to what's next in the conversation. So when I say to you, I'm not sure if it's for you, but your little voice goes, well, I'll be the judge of that. What is it? Can't stop looking at it. So how does a salesperson use this? 
how easy would it be to even send a text message today to an existing client that there's opportunity to be able to grow the number of products or services they have with you? Say, hey, I'm not sure if it's for you, but many other business leaders in your circumstances are having huge success with blank. Question mark, question mark, question mark. We could build on it and say, how open-minded would you be to learning more? And now look what's happening. We're becoming pulley and not pushy. What we're creating is we're creating moments where a prospect says to you, tell me some more about that. Most sales professionals are pretty darn good once the prospect says, tell me some more about that. They just don't get to enough moments where somebody says, tell me some more about that. So we can be very flirtatious with ideas. Hey, I'm not sure if it's for you, but I got some really good ideas about how you can get even more out of your relationship with us. Oh, tell me some more about that. Well, when would be a good time for us to catch up and walk through these ideas properly? Well, how much time do you need? Well, I'm going to need a whole 45 minutes. Well, I could probably make that work next week. Monday or Tuesday, when suits you best? Well, Tuesday be better for me. Morning or afternoons, when good for you? Well, maybe somewhere like 10, 10.30. Well, I can get to you by 10.45. How does that work? Yeah, that works great. So that's one example. Tell me what's the second? Because I love what you just shared, by the way. And I think that's, that's a tip that we could use today. Like the listeners today can take this, look, this tip and they can action it. Um, give us the second. I love the first. I want to hear the second. There is a second one hidden in that first example is the whole world likes to see themselves as open-minded. Given the whole world likes to see themselves as open-minded, if you form that into a question, you can move the odds of people saying yes from 50-50 to 90-10 in your favor. What do they do in that example is how open-minded would you be to learning more is an almost impossible question to say no to. So I can get permission to present with a how open-minded framework, but I'm going to give something that actually lives in our certification program that doesn't live in um, the original version of exactly what to say. So we expanded the book. We now run detailed certifications, 32 sequences of words, not 23, method behind the madness, examples in life and examples in leadership as well as in sales. But perhaps one of the most useful sequences of words that I'm introducing to people in these current weeks and months is an ability to extract more information from people. When it comes to trying to extract information from people, quite often what we do is we reach for a command order, and that command order starts with the words, tell me. Tell me what you're thinking. Tell me some more. Tell me more about how that works. When you use the words, tell me, what you do is you create friction in the other person because it's a command order and it's a demand that is pointed down at somebody. Think of it again if we simplify when there comes to a scenario where a child in your life has done something they shouldn't have done. You might jump to like, tell me what you were thinking. Tell me why you did that. Tell me who made you do that. It creates a defense, which often results in excuse or denial in the other direction. Doesn't get you truth. When you swap your tell me's for help me's, now all of a sudden, it's freer for the other person to tell you the truth. So instead of saying, tell me what you were thinking, use the preface, help me understand. So in a scenario that you're looking to be able to win the business for somebody, Instead of saying, tell me what it would take for us to be able to secure your business. Hey, help me understand, like, what are some of the things that we could do differently here or that we could adjust in the way that we're approaching you that may result in you potentially giving us a serious opportunity to work together? It's a lot harder to not tell me the truth. It's a lot harder for somebody to be able to respond with excuse or denial. Same as with a child. If I said to the child that did something wrong, it's like, hey, honey, um, help me understand, like, how did you decide that that was the right thing to do? What do I now get? I'm now way more likely to get an honest answer of truth because I created a frame 
that was a safe space for somebody to come with the truth in. I mean, I love this advice, by the way. So I'm going to use this in my marriage. So when I talk to my wife, I'm going to use help me understand versus tell me. I think that'll go a long way. How can I be a better friend to you this weekend? Is help me understand what changes can I make in my life that means that you'd feel like you're getting more support with the kids. Like whatever it might be, it creates a framework for truth. And this is what I mean about critical conversations. Almost all of us are just one meaningful conversation away from a significant change in our life. That's it. And I believe that if more people knew exactly what to say, almost every problem in the world could be solved. Yeah, I mean, just just awesome advice. I mean, there's so many, so much action people can take to to change the outcome just by incorporating some of these tips. And there's so many other great tips in your book, by the way. And if if you, if the listeners have not read your book, I highly, highly, highly encourage them to go take a take a look at it because I've got a copy myself and I really, I really like it. So let's talk about the other body of work, which is exactly how to sell. Like what's the premise around that and anything specific you want to share around that book? Yeah. I mean, exactly how to sell is, is really a sales guide for non-salespeople. This is for individuals that are looking to drive commercial outcomes in their life, but don't see themselves as somebody that is naturally quote unquote a salesperson. So we walk through everything from how to be properly prepared, how to think about the target market avatar, i.e. your missing people that you'd look to be able to add to your prospect, your customer base, talk about how to approach those individuals to be able to start conversations, to create opportunities, walk from there to say, how do you be able to build rapport? Then how do you be able to uncover genuine opportunities? Then what does a great sales presentation look like? How do you structure your information in a way so you can package your brilliance in a way that somebody else is going to see it as brilliant? Spend time looking at just giving people the knowledge around different closing techniques. Share six precise different closing techniques so people can find confidence in asking for the outcome they're looking for. Reason we share six different closing techniques is if one works or doesn't work, you can take another go, another go, another go. The other reason we share six different closing techniques in that book is because different circumstances often are better suited to different techniques. We look at how you can prevent objections, overcome objections, get more from conversations, how you can stay in the game, and some sprinkling and ideas of how do you account manage the customers that you've got on to be able to create. But it is a very much tactical, practical guide for how you can add essential sales skills into whatever it is that you're looking to better do for life. And what I intended to be able to do with that book was to cover a lot of ground in a very practical way and cut out all the fluff. So we cover a lot in that book and give people very precise actions on how they can be more sales-like and generate increased revenues and increased customer transactions in um, in a way that doesn't have them feeling salesy. I mean, sounds like a great guide. I mean, it applies to everybody, sales or non-sales. You know, I'm just curious, you know, with all the listeners out there, I'm sure everybody's wondering, like, how can I make my sales presentation better? You talk about the different techniques. Would you share one? Like, one thing I could do today in my sales presentation to make it more effective? If we're thinking about a sales presentation, is there's some structure that could come to it that could be pretty helpful. The structure to that sales presentation is three parts, and it's a beginning, a middle, and an end. Now, I say that a little jokingly because most sales presentations I bump into are all middle. There's no purposeful frame that's been created for it at the beginning. 
and then there's no solid call to action or clarity around what the next steps are. It's just a, a volume of information that shares with somebody how brilliant you are, and it's not neatly organized. So if I take it a little further, what should go into a beginning, what should go into a middle, and what should go into an end when structuring a sales presentation if you're looking to be more efficient with your time and their time? Firstly, the beginning should be some version of why you are presenting. And what that often is, is, is a transition statement. Because when it comes to delivering a presentation, often there's some small talk, some setup, some rapport building, et cetera. And then you get to the almost shut up and listen while I tell you while I'm here for you and what I have to be able to offer, right? There's a transition moment in the conversation. So the beginning of your sales presentation isn't the beginning of the conversation. It's the beginning of the moment when you start to be able to deliver your quote unquote pitch. So the first thing you're looking to be able to do is to share why you're presenting. That might look something like, so the reason we're here today is to be able to help X achieve Y. So the reason that we're here today is to help you and your organization improve your operational efficiency with systems so you can buy back more time to focus on customer experience, right? Ah, we've just built a frame that says, that's why we are here today. What you then do in your beginning is you set up some form of agenda during our time. And this is whether it's a three minute presentation or a three hour presentation, still an agenda. What I'm going to share with you today is a little bit about us, who we are and our background. I'm going to talk you through the precise solution that I believe is going to be right for you and your organization today. I'm going to share with you some of the other services that we have that may be available to you over time. And then once I've shared all that information with you, I'm going to walk you through the next steps and find out what you want to, might want to do from here. So what we've done is we've put in our agenda that this is a decision-making appointment. What do I then do in the middle? I spend a little time on history and credibility. So that is something about like why you're awesome. So for the last 32 years, we've been helping organizations like yours to achieve blank, 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 and blank. We help companies from as little as this and as big as this. And more recently, we've helped somebody just like you to achieve this in this period of time. And what they said about us was blank. The range of services we provide is from as long as here to here. But based on the fact that you said that what you're looking to do is boom, 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 our best recommendation to help you today is blank. What you then do is you build all the value out, out of the thing that you're looking for them to see the value in, i.e. your current solution towards the problem that's just been established. And then you tell them how much money it is. Now that you've told them how much money it is, you don't have to just stop on how much money it is. What you can now do is jump to the end of the presentation, which is a, an example of where what you can do is you can provide some form of wrap up. If we gave an agenda earlier, we need to provide a summary at the end. So I've shared with you a little bit of today about us, who we are, what makes us different walk you through the kind of results that we've achieved for others and the breadth of products and services we can provide for people in this sector. But more importantly, I showed you precisely how our solution can help you get from here to here, share with you what it would take as an investment in order to be able to do so, and gave you some insights as to the kind of results that that would achieve for you. So now I've put that summary in place, it then gives me permission to close. And all that permission to close is, is to create a next step statement. So the next steps on from here is to decide how soon you want to get started and who might be the best people to communicate with on your side so that we can get this implemented in the quickest period of time. That's brilliant. So I'm just curious, you know, I got to believe one of the common mistakes is people, they end the presentation right after the money piece, right? Like here's, here's the money piece and uh, that's it. Ta-da! That what you, yeah, exactly. Sign, sign here, sign here. Um, is that what you see? Is that the most common mistake that sales professionals are making is they just, they end it right there. Yeah. And, and that's what I mean by being all middle. 
There was no frame and setup that gave them permission to be able to carry this forward, and there was no end. So you didn't build the box to put the gift in, and then you didn't gift wrap it and put a bow on it. You just gave them the contents of the box. If we're looking for people to receive your presentation as intended, which is as a gift, the word presentation, in fact, has the word present in it. Another word for a present is a gift. The presentation should be gift wrapping and packaging beautifully your solution. So you have to set it up and build the box with a beginning. You then have to fill the box with all your goodies, but you then have to put that meaningful end on it. When people don't put a meaningful end on it, they don't take control of the conversation. They don't lead it towards the next step. So what happens is, is they deliver all the information, they talk about the price, and then they leave this awkward silence. And the only thing the other person is then left with the ability to talk about is the price, because that's the frame you gave them. So they come back with things like, is, um, so is there anything you can do about the price? Can you maybe put this together in an email? Can you, you know, send it as an attachment? I need some time to think about it. I'm just going to talk it through with my partners, need to check with my spouse, need to walk it through with my boss. Like all of these common objections are almost always created by this awkward pause where the other person didn't know what to do. So they did what they thought they should do, which is on some occasions sign, but on more occasions come back with some friction and some sales resistance which is typically in one of those responses I gave a second ago. Need some time to think about it. Can you send it with me, to me? I need to walk it through with my business partners, my colleagues, my board, whoever it might be. And now we're on the back foot needing to do the one thing that we hate to do, which is follow up and chase. Well, there you go. Sounds like framework. We got to tee this up appropriately. And if we do that, we can avoid those endless objections that as salespeople, we all hate. We all hate objections. So sounds like framework is the key. Um, going back to the per, uh, persuasion stuff, you know, just curious, like what is the most common mistake that salespeople make around persuasion? When it comes to trying to persuade people, the typical belief system is that persuasion is manipulation or pushing somebody into some form of outcome. The thing to remember is that people do things for their reasons and not yours. That means if you want to increase your efficacy in a persuasion moment is that you should never, ever, 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 ever ask somebody to do something unless you can say these words first. And the words you should look to say first are the words because of the fact that you said. Because of the fact that you said blank, blank, and blank, then for those reasons, what I'd recommend is blank, blank, and blank. Now, that's a remarkably simple framework to deliver in theory. It's a far more challenging framework to deliver in practice because you have to collect the blanks. So to be more persuasive, what you're not looking to have is the gift of the gab. You're looking to be strategically curious to collect the body of evidence to mean that your recommendation carries more strength. You're looking to make a stronger case for your argument as opposed to be more argumentative or just speak louder or faster. So the mistake that people make is they get too far along in a conversation without collecting meaningful evidence. Therefore, their recommendations are based on their opinions not on the specific needs of the person they're looking to influence or persuade. So work to be able to say, because of the fact that you said blank, blank, and blank, for those reasons, what I'd recommend is blank, blank, and blank. Put more simply is in the medical industry, they say that prescription before diagnosis is malpractice. Same is true in our profession too. If we're prescribing an outcome or a solution for somebody without properly diagnosing it first, then we're guessing. And it sounds like back to what you said early on, right? Instead of coming up with a recommendation or solution, be curious, ask three more questions, right? Ask those three more questions, right? 
And if you're looking to be more persuasive, the starting position of the conversation is neutral. You're not going in with a predetermined agenda. You're not going in looking to be able to convince somebody of your point of view. You're going in looking to help somebody find clarity on what the next step is. You're going in looking to be able to understand the truth in a situation so that you can guide it towards what the next best truth should be. You're not trying to force your agenda. And that is a very different mindset than what the majority of people go into a conversation with, is they often go in trying to convince somebody of their point of view or to guarantee their predetermined outcome. Going in neutral actually makes you more persuasive because when you do reach a point of conclusion, you often reach that point of conclusion together and in real time. Therefore, that conclusion is a lot more truthful to everybody in the conversation. Yeah, no, that's great. I like that. Be neutral, work on the solution together, be curious, ask more questions before you come up with an outcome. Um, so curious, like your thoughts around where the world is going. Obviously, we're in this major transformational moment right now with the introduction of AI and all these new tools that are helping with the sales process, demand gen, content, follow-up. What are your thoughts? Like, How is, that, how is AI going to change things for us in terms of uh, the sales profession? Yeah, I'm, I'm excited by how technology keeps being added to um, the efficiency in all areas of life and business. And I, I, I don't think we can hide away from the fact that we are going to be looking for increased efficiencies in all forms of communication for businesses to operate at scale. And all I keep seeing is AI get better and better and better and better, literally in matters of weeks and months. So I'm excited by it. What I'm scared by is the number of people that believe it. Now, when it comes to being able to ask an AI for advice, what you have to realize you're getting is like the world's biggest committee chiming in with their opinion on what you think you should do or what the answer to the question is that you asked of it. So to get better results from AI, you need to ask better questions, which is exactly the same as in the real world. For AI to reach its level of, uh, of, of perhaps hoped anticipation, what's going to happen is humans are going to have to realize that they are dealing with an AI. It's not a AI that is pretending to be a human. That's where the risk is. If the consumer believes that this is the person or a person and then finds out it's not, we're going to lose trust. So what's going to happen is, in my prediction, is consumers are going to start to just assume that every communication that they're having that isn't in person with somebody is in some way tech enhanced, is in some way tech enabled, which means that actually for big decisions and moments that require levels of discretion or levels of consultation, we're going to force ourselves back into the need to be jumping on aeroplanes, doing business over dinner, creating moments where people are interacting and negotiating behind closed doors. I feel like that's what's going to need to happen over a period of time. And I also believe that what's going to happen is as businesses pour and pour into automation and systems being able to manage many of the important day-to-day -day conversations, we're going to detrain the quote-unquote soft skills that are required to be able to have emotional intelligence to manage moments. We're going to de-skill our organizations with that, which means that the most valuable skills that are going to exist in businesses five, 10, 15 years from now 
are going to be human beings that understand the tech, that have the emotional intelligence to be able to join the pieces together and manage the humans, both customers and internal, when things don't go the way they should do. So the greatest skills that I think of our generation past this is the ability to uh, debate, to rationalize, to empathize, to be able to communicate and collaborate in order to be able to achieve mutually agreeable outcomes when technology has found to be lacking. Because AI is highly unlikely to ever have emotional intelligence because it cannot read the moment it's looking at. It can only use the past for reference. Sales professionals are here to stay, right? Providing they're good enough and providing they're prepared to get into the mess. However, it also means that I think what the market is looking for is is tech-enabled humans, not people who are only humans. You still have to understand it. You're still going to have to use it. It's still going to have to be a part of the way in which you operate because you won't be able to move quick enough without it. But it's not the only thing. We still need high levels of human interaction. Yeah, because I, I mean, I believe at the end of the day, like AI is going to be great for the research stage, like really understanding the research. So when you get into the situation where you're looking to make that final decision, then the relationship aspect comes into play, right? Because people want to buy from people. So. And the AI is going to be helpful for FAQs and the AI is going to be helpful for customer success and customer support and integration and training and development of your people and the chance for you to be able to um, get insights and answers to questions as leaders of sales teams is AI should be allow you to buy back time by being able to help your team get access to information without slowing somebody else's day down more effectively. Like there's so many practical applications where it is better than a human. And I had one of the greatest customer service interactions the other day with the Amex chatbot that was better than I'd ever had with working with anybody in their customer support department. So I think there is space for like these tools to actually outperform humans. That's cool. That's cool. Um, so I know you're always very busy, you know, uh, thought leader in the space. You've wrote some amazing books. Like what's next for Phil Jones? Like, is there anything you're currently working on that you want to share? I'm committed to exactly what to say in the same way that Rick Astley is committed to never going to give you up, right? Like this is the tip of the arrow of my body of work. And I'm excited about how it, takes us into areas that I didn't previously imagine that it would take us into. So, you know, I'm doing work with organizations that are part of national security, looking at how we can utilize language to be able to fast track uh, mission critical um, machinery and software to our front line. I'm working in scenarios where the language that's used in medical facilities towards parents of um, suffering families and uh, uh, is being upskilled so that what we can do is manage bedside manner at a better level and all these unique areas. Plus, have um, now created a license program within our Exactly What to Say material. So I've got 37 independent certified guides. So training others to carry our message into unique worlds is probably where my primary focus is because so many of those alternative markets, um, the message is applicable, but I'm not the right messenger. So finding the messenger that is appropriate to bring the message into those worlds is is exciting to me. And some of that is people that 
have English as a second language. Some of that is taking it into the world of relationships and family management. Some of it is taking it into the world of parenting and how people can have more effective conversations with their with their children. And I'm excited about all these new doors opening to carry the message into new areas that I would have never been the right person to carry it to. That's so awesome. Congratulations on all the success. And it's, it's just so cool to watch. So as we wrap things up here, you know, and all the listeners have, you know, listened in to all the tips and techniques around persuasion and, um, you know, exactly what to say, the premise around that book. If we, as we wrap things up, like what is the one thing that a salesperson should do tomorrow? Like what's the one thing they should do to become a more effective communicator um, in the sales process? Um, if they're an established sales professional, call your existing customer base and ask them two questions. The first question is, what three things do you like best about working with me? Shut up and listen to the answers. When you ask somebody what three things do they like best, they tell you the truth. The first thing they tell you is the first thing they could think of. It's not necessarily the most important thing. It's the first thing they could think of. The second thing they tell you is quite often the most important thing to them. And the third thing they tell you is their favorite nice to have, that little extra piece of spice that is valuable to them. Once you've asked that first question and listened to the answers, the next question you ask is if there was one thing you could change about me or one thing you could change about the relationship or one thing you could change about us, what would that be? Now shut up and listen to that too. Because they just gave you three pieces of good news. They're now going to be open and honest about something you could do better for them. And you're just going to create an opportunity for you to either grow or better retain an existing client. So if you can just take that action step, go through your book of existing business, ask those two questions. I promise you the insights you'll learn from it will help you amplify your strengths and overcome some of the challenges that potentially could lead towards you losing or minimizing a relationship you have with existing business. And my belief for sales focused organizations today, customer success and retention is as important a part of the business as client acquisition. And if not a more important part of the business, given the saturation in consumers and rapid growth of tech companies, et cetera, is now hit a point of a touch of a plateau, unless you've got the most exciting new tech stack. Um, so keeping what you've got is the secret to growth as opposed to keep filling a leaky bucket. There you go. Phil Jones, exactly how to sell, exactly what to say. Congratulations on all the success, my man. Thanks for spending time. Loved the conversation. So many good tips that you've shared with us today. Thanks, man. Hey, my pleasure. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on the show, Great. Right?